0: i thank you for the power of your word i thank you for the truths of your word that we're going to look at today i pray that we would be greatly encouraged uh, by the things that we learn in your name amen so if you have your phone on please silence it well one morning emma woke up with a start her husband asked what's what's the matter and she said well i just had a very vivid dream that you gave me a beautiful pearl necklace what do you think it means she asked He said, well, you'll know tonight. So that evening, when Jim came home with a small gift bag, he gave it to his wife. Delighted, she opened it, only to find a book entitled The Meaning of Dreams. Not a nice man. I think one of the greatest sorrows in this life is when people feel that they are stuck with irreconcilable differences, whether it's loved ones or friends or a church family member. And sadly for many, they wait until it's too late before making another attempt to make things right, and that person passes. Failure to apply scripture and forgive as we've been forgiven in Christ brings about tragic consequences, and it causes people really to live in a self-created prison that breeds bitterness and resentment. How much greater than a sorrow is the truth that all people are born enemies of God, even though they have no idea that that's the case. Because they like the idea of a God that they have in their own minds, Uh, they don't think they have any animosity towards him. Others feel they're just neutral in what they believe. But the sad reality is all people are only at peace, really, with their own flesh, unaware that they are actually hostile towards God. One author put it this way, being unregenerate, they have nothing to do with peace. They may have a truce, but not peace. God may forbear the wicked a while and stop the roaring of his cannon, but though there be a truce, yet there is no peace. The wicked may have something which looks like peace, but it is not. They may be fearless and stupid, but there is a great difference between a stupefied conscience and a pacified conscience. This is the devil's peace, He rocks men in the cradle of security. He cries, peace, peace, when men are on the precipice of hell. The seeming peace a sinner has is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but from the ignorance of his danger, end of quote. So this is why people are clueless to the fact that God sees sinners as an enemy, and he is angry with their sin. Jesus went so far as to say that every person who is not a child of his is a child of Satan in John 8, 44. So this is a huge rift that no human could ever fix or resolve. Amazingly, God has made the provision for sinners to be reconciled to him. This is the truth of justification that Paul has been writing about at length. We have seen in our studies that God declares a sinner to be righteous When they trust Jesus and his death on the cross as the only way to be forgiven for their sins. At that moment when you turn from your sin and call on Jesus to save you by faith, he removes all of our guilt, places it on Jesus, then takes the righteousness of Jesus and places it on the sinner's account. This is the good news of the gospel. It would appear that Paul anticipates objections, as we saw last week from his Jewish audience, and uh, that believed you have to be circumcised, or you have to keep the law, and keep on keeping the law in order to be righteous and stay righteous. Paul has been hammering home the truth that salvation has always been, by faith alone. But is this salvation secure forever? Can a believer lose being in a right standing before God? And that's what Paul is going to deal with here in chapter 5. So we look at the results of justification, and the first one is there is peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word therefore points back to the truth that was very made clear to us in chapter 4, that justification is by faith alone. It is because we are declared righteous that a believer then has peace with God. As you discussed in your questions, the peace with God is not the same as the peace of God. Uh, believers go through trials and difficulties in this life. We are commanded to cast our cares and anxieties upon the Lord, but at times we certainly fail to do that, and we are plagued with the sin of worry. The peace with God that Paul speaks of here means that the war between us and God is over. We are no longer as enemies living for self. At the moment of our salvation, the war is over, and we are at peace with Him. This is only possible through Jesus, who took God's wrath on himself on the cross. We as believers have this peace with God because God is satisfied with Christ's sacrifice for our sin. So regardless of how awful we may feel, how spiritual, how unspiritual we may feel, the war with God is over for eternity. What amazing contentment and peace we ought to have knowing that all of the sins of our past, present, and future have been dealt with and paid for. God overrules events and ordeals of this day and works it for good. And he's promised that there's nothing that can ever separate us from his love. As I mentioned earlier, most people don't even know that they are at war with God. They don't even realize they need to be reconciled to him. But that doesn't change the fact that this is the truth. Christ makes it possible to be at peace with God Because of the sacrifice he has made. So a sinner who trusts him by faith is declared righteous. Forgiven of all their sins. Because of God being satisfied with the propitiation. The death of Christ. Another result is seen in verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction. By faith. Into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope of glory. It is through Jesus that we have access to God. The moment we trust Christ for salvation, we, go, we are able to go freely into his presence. The Greek word for this expression obtained, our introduction, is only used three times in the New Testament, and it always speaks of a believer having access to God through Jesus. When we are declared righteous, Jesus presents us then to the Father because all of our sins have been removed. And the barrier between us and God is gone. Instead of being children of wrath, we're actually able to stand in grace. It is by grace, God's undeserved favor, that we have salvation. And it is this position of grace that makes us firm because it cannot be removed. I remind you of what Hebrews 7.25 tells us, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Salvation begins with grace, and grace is how it continues Many people think they are saved by grace, but they have it in their minds that the only way they will stay saved by grace is if they keep up with a certain level of codes or rules or behavior. But the truth Paul is driving home is the idea of permanence. Our salvation is secure only because God keeps us and has saved us by his grace. We stand in grace, which makes it possible to be in a forgiven condition. Jesus died for all the past, present, and future sins. What a great thrill. He goes on to say we exalt in the hope of glory. We rejoice because of the confidence we have in being glorified. As John says in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, we have that confidence that someday we will be with him and we will be like him. But what about all the trials and difficulties and challenges in this life? Will they drive us away from Christ? No, the opposite is actually true. Verse 3 says, And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Heartache and sorrow and troubles in this life are hard. But the truth is, these things are not working against us in our faith. They are working for us. Our trials and our difficulties actually produce perseverance and steadfastness and patient endurance. We run to the Lord in our pain, We may not understand what in the world he's doing, but he is our only place of safety. He's our only strong tower to run to and refuge. Our trials produce then a reliance on the Lord. We see how weak we are, and we realize it's only his strength that will cause us to endure. Perseverance proves we are truly his own, and it leads to proven character. So when you endure the trials of this life as you lean on him, it proves that you are his child. You don't abandon your faith. A deep trial, though, as I said, we may struggle with understanding what God's doing and, and not be able to get it. <laughs> but uh, I'm reminded of the wonderful message and book I've listened to probably 15 times by Paul David Tripp. You can pull it up on YouTube. It's on suffering and the gospel. And the message was made into a book on suffering as well. But he reminds us that physical suffering exposes really the delusion of the self sufficiency and suffering, uh, that, of self sufficiency that we think we have. And suffering has the power to expose what you've been trusting in all along. God takes away your health, God takes away your money, God takes away whatever else. And you suddenly realize, <laughs> you can't do this. What have I been trusting in? What have I been leaning in, leaning on? Suffering is spiritual warfare, and it is the workroom of God's grace. Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband, as you know, was speared to death in Ecuador years ago, reminds us that suffering is never for nothing. She has a book with that title. She said, I've come to see that it's through the deepest suffering that God has taught me the deepest lessons. So does a true believer curse God or renounce their faith in difficulties? No, they call to him for strength and grace to endure. If you cry out to him and continue in the Christian life, it just goes to prove that you are justified in his child. And this produces a greater hope and assurance that heaven is really your home. This is the hope seen at the end of verse 4. Paul has made it clear the reason we rejoice in tribulation is because it strengthens our hope that we are glorified and will be in heaven one day. This life's pain is temporary, ladies. This is not the long haul. The long haul is eternity. This is the temporary. Another benefit of being justified is that we have the presence of God's Spirit in our life. The hope of heaven will never be disappointed because we will receive God's promise of glory. So we don't need to fear the future. Jesus has made hope our reality. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell every believer. He gives us a sense of God's unfathomable love for us. And we realize that really are we are objects of his love. He has justified us, and he will take us home to heaven when we die. This is his love for his own, and it is lavishly poured out to the point that it overflows. This is not an occasional eyedropper full of love, but a rather a torrential outpouring of his love in our lives. The indwelling Holy Spirit testifies to us that we are his child. We'll see that when we get to Romans 8. All of this truth gives us a solid foundation for which we have hope. Paul continues to try to help us grasp the love of God that makes possible assurance by the next verses 6 through 11 what the love of God is really like. The way God demonstrates his love is seen that while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were powerless to do anything to please God, when we had no strength in ourselves... Christ died for us. At the exact moment appointed in time in history, Christ came into the world and died for sinners. Galatians 4.4 makes it clear that God planned the exact time Christ would come before time ever began. He is the lamb slain before, from the foundation of the world. So imagine the truth that before the world was ever made, he cared about you, he designed you, what you'd look like, what your personality would be. He planned for your salvation he loved you infinitely the very ones who spend their lives in rebellion to his authority who grew up hating him who suppressed the truth about him it's in this sinful state that christ died for sinners he doesn't love us because we loved him so many people who give a testimony well i've always loved god no you've always loved the god you thought about in your mind that god should be God says we're enemies of Him, of his and hostile to him. He loves us because that is the way his love is. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the way we are. There is nothing attractive in us for him to love. Yet he loved us enough to make a way of salvation and then fulfill that way by dying for us. So if Christ loved us so much that he would die for us when we were selfish and ungodly, then we know his love will continue once we have been declared righteous. He will never stop loving us. Our salvation depends on the constancy of his love, not on us being lovable people. In verse 7, we read that it is a rare thing for a person to die for somebody else, even if that other person they die for has tremendous character. We all know of firemen, policemen, soldiers, parents, friends who have risked their lives or even laid down their lives and done a brave deed to spare someone else's life. They did that because they considered that person worthy of still being alive. But the love of God is different. While we were yet sinners, his enemies, he died for us. We're all deserving of God's wrath. We're all born rebellious and selfish, and we deserve his wrath and justice justice and punishment, really. Yet this verse declares that God loved us even while we were his enemies. The proof of his love is the death of Christ. This is the amazing depth of the nature of God's love. And if you know Christ, then no matter what crisis or tragedy befalls you, there is an absolute assurance and comfort in the reality that you are loved unconditionally forever and ever. Sorrow and pain are temporary. The assurance we have because of this love is seen in 9 and 10. Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So Paul states the fact about how permanent our salvation is. Those declared righteous will be saved from future judgment. And how do we know that to be true? Verse 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So if we are declared righteous while we were still his enemies, and obviously he will keep us now that we are his friends. He will not lose any of his children. I just need to read John 10 for that clarity. The most monumental event in all of history is Christ dying for our sins. And if he did that, then he will certainly bring his own to heaven. The work that he began, he will complete. This love of God that redeems the un- ungodly sinner will certainly hold on to them regardless of the individual's failures and setbacks, his love is proof of our salvation, and the only way that we are kept saved is by the life of Christ. We are saved by his death, and we are kept by his life. That verse in Hebrews seven twenty-five. I'll read the rest of it now. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to him, to, near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When we sin, Satan accuses us to God, but Jesus declares he died for that sin. Salvation is certain in spite of our failures. He will not forsake us. Our sin never kept him from dying for us in the first place. Why would it keep him from holding on to us forever? And then he says in verse 11, not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. How can we not help but bring him praise for all he has done for us? He makes it possible to have joy, even if everything is very dark. We have been reconciled. That is our biggest need. We are secure in the work he has done in paying the ransom for our debt of sin. If you have never surrendered your heart to him, I urge you today to call on this great Savior. Don't spurn this amazing love. It is your sin that separates you from a holy God. But he has made a way to be forgiven forever. And he demonstrated that love for you beyond description. And if you do know him, your salvation is so secure. But if you're not up to date repenting of your sin, you know you're not going to have the joy of fellowship. So I urge you, if there's any sin in your heart, to, to repent. And then focus and praise him for this incredible unfailing love that he has for you next paul is going to give an illustration by contrast between adam and christ we all hate the sorrow that comes because of death it affects every human whether they are infant unborn or born child teen young adult or the aged. and how did death become the victor over all of mankind paul now uses an analogy between adam and jesus These verses can sound a bit complicated and confusing, but the main lesson we're going to hopefully see. Paul wants believers to grasp, as one person put it, since we have been delivered from Adam's condemnation and death and are now partakers of Christ's righteousness and life, we have assurance of absolute certainty that one day we will share in his glory in heaven. We read that in verse 12, that all are condemned in Adam. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Notice this verse starts without, uh, with therefore, which refers back to what we've just been looking at, that we're reconciled by Christ, no longer condemned to death, but rather we have been justified and have life. The point of these next verses is to prove that just as all men are condemned on the basis of what Adam did... So all who believe are justified on the basis of what Christ did. Back in Genesis 3, we read how sin entered the world when Adam chose to disobey God. And regardless of how people believe or reject this truth of original sin, the evidence is everywhere. I mean, no baby and no child has to be taught how to be selfish, how to lie, how to be (laughs) mean. (laughs) Because... That is the nature we are all born with, our sin nature. The world is a wicked place because of sin. And when sin entered the human race, sadly it brought with it our worst enemy, and that is death. Every funeral you attend should remind you to hate sin. That's why there's death. Had Adam never sinned, there would never have been death in life. Death is not normal. It's not how God created the world to be. Death is the result of sin. And spiritual and physical death came because of sin. This death spread to every person then who would ever live. Adam opened the door to sin and in walked death. And no one is exempt. Paul states clearly that sin entered the world through Adam. Death also entered the world because death is the result of sin. Death affects everyone. And maybe you think Adam was not a very fair representative of, of you... However, Paul is trying to help us understand the truth that all humanity was in the loins, as it were, of Adam when he sinned, so we share his guilt. Imagine Adam didn't even have a sin nature when he sinned. His faulty thinking to believe you or I would have done anything different than Adam. Had it been you or me in the garden, we would have disobeyed as well. The amazing reality is that by condemning the human race through one man, Adam, God was unable to save the human race through one man, Christ. Think about fallen angels. They can't be saved. They sinned individually and they are judged by God. There is no representative angel that's going to take their judgment and save them. When we sinned in Adam, he is the head of the human race. People make distinctions regarding race, but God says there's only one race. It is the human race. And the proof that sin came into the world before the law of Moses was ever given is seen well. We did our study in Genesis last semester. It didn't take long to get to the flood where God destroyed the whole world except for one man and his family because of the wickedness of their sin. Verse 13, there was sin and once the law was given then there was also transgression of the law that was given. But before the law people still sinned and died because they broke the specific command of God in Adam. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So death still reigned like a king, not because a person deliberately broke the law of Moses before the law was given, but because they broke the very first law, the command God gave to Adam, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. People died before the law was ever given because they had already sinned in Adam. I remind you, Adam was not deceived. He knew exactly what he was doing. And all of mankind sinned in Adam, and that is why death comes even to babies. Unless you feel this is completely unfair that Adam represented you this way and that in Adam you sinned too, is it fair that the righteousness of the one uh, who died in your place brings about forgiveness and makes you declared righteous? The contrast of Adam and Christ we see further Verse 14 ended by telling us that Adam is a type of him who was to come. And how how so? Well, only in the sense that many have been affected by Adam's sin and many have been affected by Christ's death. It It is really an analogy of contrast. Adam's sin brought spiritual, physical, and eternal death. But the result of Christ's death brings about so much more. Through Christ we receive righteousness. We are made secure. We are adopted. We are in his family. We'll be glorified. Because of the grace of God, we receive far more than what we lost in Adam. Another contrast is given in verse 16. Grace in Christ is far greater than sin in Adam. The moment Adam sinned, the judgment of death came to all men, and all men were condemned. But what Christ did is so much greater. Christ's grace didn't just forgive our sin in Adam. It dealt with all sins. Therefore, salvation is secure because of what Christ has done to deliver every believer. When we're declared righteous, every sin, past, present, and future has been paid for. It only took one sin to plunge the whole human race to go to hell. And that is how seriously God views sin. So we dare not take lightly our own sin, knowing God's hatred of it. You know, you can rename sin. You can call it a phobia, an addiction. You can categorize it. Uh, to make you feel better about it, but sin is still sin that separates you from a holy God. How amazing it is that God's grace is greater than all sin. I love that old hymn, Grace That Is Greater Than All My Sin. When Adam sinned, death became the master of all mankind, and the fear of death holds people in bondage. But when we enter into a relationship with Christ, we are no longer ruled by death. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. We are no longer under the dominion of death. We are more than conquerors. So Paul summarizes in 18 and 19, because of Adam's one act of disobedience, God treats all men as sinners. But because of Christ's one act of obedience, dying for our sins, God treats all believers as righteous. Salvation uh, is secure, Because it doesn't depend on our obedience. It depends on the obedience of Christ. Some like to take this passage and say it proves that all mankind will be saved. Everybody died in Adam. Everybody's saved in Christ. But the all referred to are connected to Adam, the entire human race. And the all connected to Jesus are the ones who will never be condemned. So Paul clarifies an important truth for those wondering how the law of Moses fits in then. The law revealed our sin. Yet the grace of God abounded even more. God's grace triumphed over our sin. In other words, God's grace doesn't just cancel out death. It triumphs over sin by providing righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So grace is able to forgive all sin. No matter how wicked a person may be, God's grace can forgive that sin. There is no sin deeper than the grace of God. The law could never save anybody. It was given to convince people that they are sinners. Sin was already dominating the world before the law ever came to be, but God brought the law to show people how sinful they are. This has been a challenging chapter, but I don't, think, I don't want you to get lost in the details and fail to see the amazing picture of the grace of God. Those who have been declared righteous by faith in Christ and his death are blessed with being at peace with God. The war is over. We have this grace on which we stand, and therefore we have hope. If this is true of you, then you can exalt, even in the midst of difficulty and tribulation, because that's what's going to develop perseverance in you, and character, and hope. This love has been poured out in the hearts through the Holy Spirit. Think about that. As I said, I think of a little birdie, you know, with a little food, getting a little eyedropper, or if you took care of a little animal at one point. God's love is lavish. It's oceans and oceans of pouring out his love on us. This love extends life and hope to the ungodly. God has the greatest demonstration of love there could ever be. So the question really is then, what have you done with this love? Don't ignore it. Don't trifle with it. Don't take advantage of it. Don't ignore it. Live your life daily. Surrender to him in obedience to his word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the incredible truths in this chapter. Lord, I pray that each woman here would be grounded in the truths of your word to understand what righteousness is, being declared righteous, what justification is, understanding the security we have that is never based on us getting ourselves saved or keeping ourselves saved. Lord, I thank you for the perfect obedience you demonstrated as you walked this earth. I thank you that you were tempted in all points as we are and yet without sin, so you know everything we go through. I thank you for your unbelievable, unfathomable love that has no end. Lord, I pray that when everything is very bleak in the world that we're in, that we would remember your love and have joy in the truths of your word. In your name, amen. Thank you, ladies.